यू आर लिसनिंग टू अमिंट प्रोडक्शन प्रॉट यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट The March of 1991 was a turning point in India's history. The Chandrasekhar government presented an interim budget on the 4th of March. Finance Minister Yashwant Sinha spoke in the budget speech of a fragile economic situation and a macroeconomic crisis, but could not take corrective steps required because the government was politically too weak. By May 1991, international rating agencies had downgraded India to below investment grade. India was on the brink of default on its international obligations. something that had never happened before mr sinha authorized the state bank of india to sell 20 tons of gold from the government of india's stock to the union bank of switzerland he also authorized negotiations for pledging 47 tons of gold from the reserves as collateral for a loan of 600 million dollars from the bank of japan and the bank of england they insisted that the gold should be physically shipped to their vaults in london On 21st June 1991 a new government headed by PV Narasimha Rao was sworn in. It brought the crisis under control and reversed the economic policies of interventionism India had stuck to in the first four decades post independence. These decisions changed the Indian economy unimaginably. Welcome to India's reform story. I'm your host Pooja Mehra. I'm an independent journalist and podcaster and the author of The Lost Decade 2008 to 18: How India's Growth Story Devolved into Growth Without a Story. India's Reform Story is a seven-part podcast. In a series of seven conversations with economists, policymakers and commentators, I will unpack the story behind India's reforms and find out what went on behind the scenes and how successive prime ministers from Atal Bihari Vajpayee to Narendra Modi have taken these reforms forward. The problem in India is not so much of not knowing what is to be done. There is usually a body of analysis and recommendations gathering dust waiting to be acted upon. But political agendas tend to be too full of other things to do. The BOP crisis of 1991 was foretold. Expert advice was available in government on what needed to be done, but no politician wanted to bite the bullet. To start the series, I asked Mr. Montek Singh Alwalia to recount how the 1991 crisis built up, how it was brought under control, and how political space cracked open for reversing interventionist economic policies India had followed for the first four decades of post-independence. Mr. Alwalia was Commerce Secretary and then Finance Secretary in Prime Minister P. V. Narasimha Rao's government. He was earlier an advisor in Prime Minister V. P. Singh's office and later in Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee's office. and then deputy chairman of planning commission during the tenure tenure of the manmohan singh led government could you please tell my listeners about the severity of the bop crisis and how it got built up the political inaction leading up to the events in june july 1991 uh, the negotiations with the imf and uh, then after that if you could narrate how the crisis was brought under control Well you know the origin of the 1991991 crisis goes back to the last years of the 1980s when the congress government under prime minister rajiv gandhi was in office and you know fiscal expansion had begun to reflect itself in pressures in the balance of payments and internally the prime minister was briefed that look we have a problem we have to take corrective actions but since an election was due in 1989 the judgment was that we should take corrective action immediately after the election 
This is a view which even the IMF managing director, Michel Kamdasu, who visited India, had confirmed that it's important that we do something, but we can wait until after the election. Now, of course, when the election happened, a new government came in, headed by Mr. B.P. Singh. Uh, I was earlier in the prime minister's office, and I continued to be in the same position under V.P. Singh. I had worked with him earlier when he was finance minister, and I gave him a full briefing that, look, we do have a balance of payments problem, and you've got to tackle it. Now, he was, of course, not in a politically very strong position, and perhaps he had other political agendas that he wanted to pursue first, Lots of difficulties of a coalition government, it was first coalition government after some time, and he was not able to take much action. Uh, the problem grew worse. And in 1989, of course, you know, Eastern Europe kind of exited from the communist bloc. So a lot of our trade arrangements with those countries also dried up. And then you had the Gulf crisis with Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait. And that caused a huge spike in petrol prices in petroleum prices and led to a very severe balance of payments crisis. Now, everybody knew that India was in a vulnerable position, partly because the domestic politics was highly unstable. I mean, you had a government which at that time, VP Singh has, had played the Mandal card. There was a lot of unrest domestically, students agitating in the streets, the BJP very upset at the whole Mandal thing, the Ratha Yatra sort of starting. It didn't look as if the internal politics would enable the government to take corrective action. So you had a loss of confidence. I mean, money that was coming in stopped coming in. Some money went out and the situation became worse. VP Singh, of course, resigned towards the end of 1990. Uh, Chandrasekhar came in, even weaker government and even less capability of handling the problem. But I think Chandrasekhar realized that we'd got ourselves into a position where because we hadn't taken action for the previous 18 months, uh, we would need assistance from the IMF in order to make it easier to do the adjustment. You know, the IMF only provides you a little bit of money so you get a little more time. You have to do the correction anyway. And he had started to negotiate with the IMF, but he had started with what are called the low conditionality facilities, where you don't have much conditions. It's kind of a first drawing that is practically your right. And they had started the negotiations on the tougher upper credit tranche facilities towards the end of their own period. And then, of course, the Chandrasekhar government fell and you had an election and then you moved into the 1991 events. Mr. Gandhi was, of course, assassinated in the middle of the election. But, you know, the Congress came back with a substantial vote in Parliament as the largest party. And that's when Mr. Narasimha Rao took over. So, I mean, he took over in a situation where the foreign exchange reserves had practically hit rock bottom. And, you know, the previous government had negotiated a sale of gold and borrowing against existing gold it required the gold to move out. To their credit, the new government did not interrupt those arrangements and, in fact, carried that through. So, you know, it was the first time that India was on the brink of having to declare a default. So that's how serious it was. And then, of course, they, they took the corrective action needed to bring the economy back. Now, that corrective action was amazingly successful because, you know, by 1993, uh, the balance of payments crisis was over. I mean, we were able to tell the IMF that we don't want to draw 
the full amount of the loan that's available. And we had originally even thought that we might need a further credit access from the IMF, and we said, we know we don't need it. So on the balance of payment side, things are all right. But I think one of the important things about the 91 reforms is that they were not just addressed at handling the balance of payments crisis. I think the government, for many years before that, within the government, there had been a lot of thinking that, listen, our economic policies are out of line, out of sync with what's happening in the world. And we need to bring about structural reform if we want to jack up the growth rate of the economy to what we thought we were capable of doing, something like 7 to 8%. Okay? And that required not just controlling the balance of payments. That was, of course, necessary. But it required a lot of structural reforms. And I think the Indian government, the Narsimarao Manmohan Singh duo, if you might say, actually launched a broad-ranging set of reforms which covered many different sectors of the economy and proceeded even beyond the balance of payments crisis by the time the balance of payments crisis had actually been overcome. Could you say something about what these reforms were, especially with relation to trade and you know the financial system uh, between the RBI and the finance ministry, the rupee devaluation? In fact, even before the 1991 budget, the commerce minister announced that the rupee would be made fully convertible on the trade account. Uh, some of those details. Yes, you know, I think uh, it's important to realize that at that time, the internal thinking that had been going on in the government had made it clear that it's not just piecemeal reforms. Reforms are interconnected and we need to act on several fronts. As a matter of fact, in 1990, I had written a note which I'd given to Mr. VP Singh at his request saying that, look, we need to do reforms in all these different areas. And the good thing about the 91 reforms was that we were able to roll those out. Now, what were they? Let me say very briefly. Definitely an exchange rate correction, and that was the first thing that was done, two-stage devaluation. We had been working on the need to liberalize trade policy. I mean, India's trade policy was kind of bizarre in the sense that we had import controls on virtually everything, and we were the most controlled economy from that point of view. We were clear in our mind that we wanted to get rid of it, and we got rid of it in stages. Uh, And actually, this was triggered Uh, by the devaluation, because when the devaluation happened, the finance ministry quite rightly said that we're going to abolish the cash compensatory support, which was a kind of export subsidy, uh, to take care of the disadvantages that our exporters had. In the commerce ministry, we had been working on a much broader trade policy reform, and we were able to persuade the finance minister that he should give his approval to announce the new trade policy reform at the same time as the abolition of the export subsidy. Now, otherwise, if you just abolish export subsidy, the exporters feel that nobody's cared about them. Whereas if you bring in these trade policy changes, including the exim scripts, which was a big incentive for exporters, much higher than anything that existed before, they would see that the reforms are also helping them. And Chidambaram had a press conference where he outlined very clearly that this is a liberalization and we're going to go beyond that. And we hope, I mean, in a way, the exim script was a kind of pseudo dual exchange rate because the exim script, uh, 30% of exports, you sold it at a premium. And what he said is we are gradually going to make the rupee convertible on the trade account. He had originally said we must do it over a period of time, but we were able to do it actually within two years. 
I mean, I moved to the finance ministry at the end of that year. And in 1992, which is the next year, we were able to bring in the dual exchange rate in March. And in 1993, we were able to unify the exchange rate. So we had a floating market-determined exchange rate much faster. By the way, none of this was part of the IMF conditionality. We had this on our own agenda. It went beyond what the IMF had ever thought that they would get. Similarly, in industry, where, in fact, Mr. Narasimha Rao was the cabinet minister in charge of industry, a very major liberalization of all the restrictions which used to be applied on the private sector. You know, the reservation for public sector industries was reduced. Uh, the whole investment licensing thing was practically thrown out of window, except for you know, what you might call environmentally sensitive areas. MRTP was got rid of. Foreign and direct investment was uh, liberalized. So a lot of changes took place, which totally changed the industrial liberalization regime. Now, you know, these two things were connected because if you get rid of industrial licensing restriction and everybody rushes off uh, to import capital goods and you have a fixed exchange rate, you have an excessive demand for foreign exchange. So liberalizing the exchange rate created an internal balance. If there was too much demand for foreign exchange, well, the exchange rate would depreciate. So it would be an automatic correction uh, of this thing. Had we simply got rid of investment licensing and not got rid of trade import control, all the guys who used to earlier queued up in front of the industry ministry would now queue up in front of the commerce ministry. So doing these two things together was very crucial. In addition to that, there were a kind of structured change, both in the banking system, bringing in better regulation, aligning it with global norms, plus uh, major tax reforms, which were laid out by the Chalea Committee. And about a couple of years later, a liberalization of uh, foreign capital inflows into the portfolio side, which earlier were very restricted. So it's a very broad ranging set of things all of which we knew were going to be on the agenda. They were not just knee-jerk things picked up, but they were put in gradually. And that's the essence of the gradualistic approach. I mean, one can criticize it by saying it meant the thing took too long. But the other side is that if you do it in small doses, uh, some of these things get accepted and you can build a bit of a consensus by bringing more people on board. Now, I must confess that while it was happening, I felt in the early years that it proceeded very well. But, you know, towards the last years of the Narsimrao government, things really did slow down. I mean, for example, we clearly had in mind liberalizing insurance and we had set up the relevant committees to make recommendations on that, the Malotra committee, for example. Uh, but action could not be taken because the political situation, you know, towards the end of a government, you always lose political momentum. So that slipped over into subsequent years. The bottom line is very broad ranging changes. In my view, a very clear vision of where we are heading. But of course, in implementation, some things got done very well. Some things didn't get done so well. Some things just slipped out of the window. And that's normal. That's why, I mean, reforms are not a kind of one shot affair. It's a commitment to making changes, looking at what happens, uh, correcting for problems, uh, anticipating problems, uh, and looking at new challenges which arise when you freed up the economy in some dimensions. And that's really why the reforms took a long time to have their full effect. I mean, I think the 
acceleration of growth did take place in the next five or six years. But the real benefit of those reforms arose because, first of all, subsequent government continued the reforms. I mean, the United Front government, which was there for two years, continued these reforms, although it had the Communist Party as a member. So that was, for investors, a kind of an interesting indication that maybe some real rethinking has taken place. And then the Vajpayee government, the NDA government under Prime Minister Vajpayee, also continued the reforms. And, you know, many segments in the BJP earlier were against foreign investment and against opening up. But Mr. Vajpayee actually really implemented continuity with change. And that gave a sense that across the political spectrum, India is ready to embark on a somewhat new course of action. And I think from the very first year of the United Front government, you had a string of very high growth rate years. And, you know, obviously these things become politicized. So some people say, oh, that's only because the world was growing well. That's certainly true. But the acceleration in India was much greater than what you saw in the world. And then, of course, as often happens, they ran into its own set of problems after the great financial crisis. And then the thing began to slow down. But for the period as a whole, uh, you had, in the, I think in the 10 years of the UPA, you ended up with an average growth rate of 7.6%, including the slowing down of the last few years. And that's hugely better than what we had ever experienced before. And that's the result of cumulative reforms done by several governments. Many commentators say that, you know, at times they argue that the burst of reforms in 1991 was unique. While there's been continuity, but no government has been able to repeat the performance. Uh, do you agree? And if you do, what is the reason? Is it uh, something about the strategy of the reforms, the thinking that went into it? Or is it personalities involved, as many people argue? What is your analysis of this? First, let me say there's no question that those reforms were unique because uh, in a single budget speech by Manmohan Singh in 1991, he laid out the broad thrust of the reforms. Subsequently, in budget speeches, we always announced programs. We've never announced serious policy changes which make you look at, oh, that's a big change that they're now about to make. I mean, you know, so I think uh, there's no doubt that it was unique. Second, why did it happen and why did it sort of work reasonably well? I think one reason, quite honestly, is that the Indian economy was so constrained that it was frankly a no-brainer. I mean, look, anyone looking at the Indian economy would have said this is crazy. And within the government, uh, senior civil servants had all begun to realize that we need to change. The trouble is none of them had the courage. Each one looks at his own ministry. Almost nobody takes a, a view of the economy as a whole. I mean, theoretically, the finance ministry and the planning commission are supposed to do that. But that's not actually in practice uh, what tends to happen operationally. Here you had a crisis and the crisis was so serious that the prime minister decided I mean, the most important decision, in my view, that the prime minister took, Prime Minister Rao, was that he wanted a finance minister who's a technocrat and not a politician. I do not believe that if he had had a politician, even if the politician had been supported by other technical advisors, these are things you have to carry conviction with other political colleagues in the cabinet. And I think having someone like Manmohan Singh in the cabinet, speaking in parliament, 
defending his position made all the difference. And I think he did a superb job of it. And just go and look at any of his speeches. So I think it was unique because A, we had a crisis which made it necessary to bring in a technocrat. B, Narsim Rao chose just the right technocrat. C, Manmohan Singh had worked a lot in government. He wasn't just somebody who was flown in in some rescue mission. Uh, and, you know, three-fourths of the Congress party greatly respected him because he had been an insider. I mean, he had worked with Indira Gandhi before and even Rajiv Gandhi, etc., etc. So it was relatively easier to get these things done. And they were also rather obvious. Subsequently, actually, because things were done slowly, the most important thing for subsequent government was to carry it through. And it was obvious that they hadn't been done fully because, I mean, the tax policy changes had said that we must reduce the customs duty rates. They're too high. And I think Dr. Manmohan Singh at one sense had said we must bring it down to the level prevailing in developing countries. The United Front, Chidambaram said we must bring it to the levels of East Asia. Yashwan Sinha repeated that and actually did a lot of that stuff. But even then, there's still much above East Asia because other countries also lowered their duties. I think then over time, a lot of people felt that, oh, yes, reforms have happened. And then there are all kinds of other problems uh, that are bound to crop up. So the focus shifted and there was less completion. I think in some areas, quite frankly, uh, there wasn't the political will. Privatization of the public sector is a good example. I mean, even in the 91 reforms, uh, we weren't actually able to call it privatization. We coined this horrible word disinvestment, which everybody in the rest of the world laughs at. And, you know, originally the idea and many, many governments had said, including the UPA, that we're going to bring not the UPA, I mean the United Front, that we're going to bring government uh, equity down below 50 percent, GB Ramakrishna. But somehow politically that I mean, the political process wasn't willing to accept that. Actually, what has happened as a result is that, you know, the dominance of the public sector has certainly stopped. Lots more private sector steel companies have come in. But we haven't actually privatized the public sector, which would have enabled these very companies to be much more healthy uh, later on. At least that's my view. Uh, this is controversial. Many people would say that, no, no, we, we should actually make the public sector perform more efficiently. I mean, that's certainly true logically. But, you know, as long as government is a majority shareholder, and the company is subject to the same rules that government is subject to with CAG, CBI, CVC, and all these uh, people. The decision-making in the public sector will be very heavily process-dominated, and it will not develop the nimbleness that you can have in the private sector. So we lost out a lot on that side. I think on banking, this is exactly the same situation because, you know, Dr. Manmohan Singh rightly recognized, I mean, he had been governor of the Reserve Bank of India. He had seen the Latin American financial collapse. So he sort of said, look, let's appoint a committee under Narasimham, which had a lot of very distinguished experts. And they came out with a structured set of proposals. You know, one of the proposals made in that committee was that we should get rid of the dual control of the public sector banks with the finance ministry and the RBI controlling it. I mean, I regret to say that I failed to get that implemented in the finance ministry. I mean, mind you, that was an early stage. And so, you know, that was going to be done over a period of time, but it hasn't been done since then. 
And we then appointed, uh, when Chidambaram was finance minister, and you had the East Asian crisis. And the East Asian crisis was a crisis because of financial weaknesses. I had suggested to Chidambaram, and he had agreed, let's get Narasimham to do a Narasimham committee too, which Narasimham did make a series of recommendations, one of which was that, you know, we've got to get rid of government equity being a majority in the bank. But Yashwan Sinha actually said that he was going to do it. But within the BJP, he was not able to get support. So again, these are areas where across the political spectrum, there doesn't seem to be a willingness to do it. And I think this is what happens, you know, when you get rid of the, get the obvious reforms done, you run into more difficult situations. And then it's not a question of providing a whole list of reforms to do suddenly. That would happen if you run into a crisis. I mean, if you're not run into a crisis, you need to intelligently think about what is it that we can push, which will make us stronger a year later, two years later, and so on. So it's less dramatic, although it's, it's definitely a continuous process. And I think we, uh, we should have had more of that. The whole lot of disappointment and disagreement that gets expressed about the economic policy thinking that has guided the entire set of reforms from 1991 onwards till now. Uh, although successive governments have continued with the direction until recently, but this consensus seems to be weakening and we are seeing these arguments coming up from all sides, all colors of the political ideology. There's already some reversal of trade policy, which many have argued is regressing to the 1970s style import substitution. At the same time, there's criticism about the economic model still not delivering for all Indians and crony capitalism. This and other problems such as, say, the large informal labor segment with limited bargaining power for informal labor. All of this is sometimes ascribed to the incompleteness of reforms, but there are also people who argue that this is a flaw in the thinking that led to these uh, reforms. So what are your views on this? And what do you think needs to be done to address you know, this criticism? No, that's both a good and a difficult question. One thing is very clear that, you know, these side effects that if you pursue growth, then you can have damage to the environment. If you pursue growth and don't care about inclusiveness, you become socially a much more divided country. If you want growth, you cannot ignore education and health. These are not things that were ignored. I mean, if you look at the 11th plan and the 12th plan, where I think people are completely wrong is to say that these policies were driven by an excessive focus on growth. The fact is that we clearly said that growth is not all. Uh, I forget the number now, but in one of those planned documents, we had said, look, uh, if you look at all these things, we should be monitoring progress on 17 different indicators. And I think that's correct. That approach is correct. We had a lot of programs to do that. It's correct to say that maybe those programs weren't sufficiently well designed and didn't have the effect that they should have had. I'm not very clear whether people are actually saying that we, we can achieve all these things without high growth. We're still, we're only a, at the bottom of the middle income category. And to my mind, I mean, if you want a stronger India, which no, I don't mean stronger India in order to attack other people. I mean, strong in order to just defend ourselves. That's good enough. But you certainly want a stronger India, which will raise uh, the levels of consumption. You must aim at growth rates of between 7 to 
I mean, the quality of jobs that you create is a function of how the economy expands. And we were very clear that you need an entire structural change to do that. Now, I don't think that we had really a game plan to handle each of these things precisely because you can't. I mean, you do something, it suddenly works, and then you suddenly say, how are we going to handle this problem? And for example, if you have a huge increase in agricultural productivity, which is surely important to raise the income of those who have land, and that increase in agricultural productivity is due to a technology which doesn't use too much labor, then there's going to be a lot of surplus labor. That doesn't mean the technology for agriculture is wrong. That just means you ask yourself, why are you not absorbing labor in manufacturing? And when you ask that question, it's not because you've got low tariffs. It's because you haven't got infrastructure. It's because your ease of doing business is terrible. It's because we haven't thought of logistics. And it's because we don't have a good enough financial system that will support lower level enterprises. In the old days, it used to be because we had too much reservation for the small scale, which prevented our guys from becoming competitive. We took a long time to get rid of it, but the Vajpayee government did get rid of it. So that particular thing is taken care of. But quality of infrastructure, how long it takes to get to the port, port procedures, quality of the banking system, these are real, real weaknesses. Now, we need to address those, not get hung up on raising tariffs. You mentioned the, the rise in tariffs, and I share the view that it is regressive. I don't think, by the way, that it's throwing us back into the 1970s, because remember, the 1970s was not just high tariffs. It was high tariffs, discretionary import quotas, uh, case by case, restrictions on investment in the private sector, excessive bias in favor of the public sector. And all these things together is what led to some of that. Today, you don't have those things. Nobody's minding foreign investment. Nobody's minding foreign technology. Nobody's minding Indian private sector expanding, which are good things. But I don't think that people are not realizing that by raising tariffs, you're going to make Indian private industry uncompetitive. And I think we need a debate on that. I'm not saying that there aren't problems. But I think what people have to recognize is that in, if Indian industry has problems, both the import competing industry and the exporting industry has the same problems. By putting tariffs, you're helping the import competing industry, but you're doing nothing to help the exporters. And that's why I think we should be spending double time to get rid of these restrictions and not viewing the raising of tariffs as a solution. Unfortunately, this is not uh, adequately understood. So let's see how, I mean, that debate probably will carry on. But that's, I think, what people need to focus on. And, you know, I must say that in this respect, it's a pity that Indian industry is not voicing this adequately. Because, look, we would never have had the software industry we developed if we had said, no, it must be done through Indian produced computers. I mean, we became a sort of a byword in software development, admittedly helped by the millennium bug uh, threat, whatever. But whatever it is, we did it. We would never have been able to do it if some of the things that were being said earlier, that yes, we must do software, but we must do it through Indian computers. I mean, we would just have been nowhere. 
and the Philippines would have moved ahead and other countries would have moved ahead. That's what you're seeing today. I mean, China is now, I mean, it has five times our per capita income. And China is going to get out of all this low technology kind of exports. Ideally, we should have been stepping in. But who's stepping in? It's Bangladesh and Vietnam. And the reason they're doing it is because in these other dimensions, they're better. Let me close this episode with quotes from Dr. Singh's 1996 interim budget speech. Five years ago, we took office at a time when the economy was on the brink of collapse. Inflation was out of control, exports were declining, forex reserves had declined to no more than two weeks' imports, and industry was virtually crippled. We had to give the highest priority to restoring macroeconomic stability and then, as quickly as possible, bring the economy back to a path of rapid and equitable economic growth. We have sought to modernize our economy, improve productivity and increase efficiency in all sectors. We have sought to integrate our economy more effectively with the world so that we can compete successfully in world markets and also attract larger volumes of investment, as so many other countries in Asia have done to their advantage. Our industry has responded magnificently to the stimulus of our policies of unshackling domestic industry and to the challenge of international competition. Many had predicted that the liberalization of imports would swamp domestic industry. We had more confidence in our industry. Five years ago, I had said that our entrepreneurs are second to none. They have amply vindicated the faith we placed in them. In each year after the crisis, the production from small-scale industry has grown faster than overall industrial production. For example, in 1993-94, output of small-scale industry rose by 7.1%, whereas overall industrial production grew by 6%. Similarly, in 1994-95, small-scale industrial growth of 10.1% outpaced overall industrial growth of 8.6%. In 1991, our critics had warned that economic reforms would lead to massive unemployment and the poor would bear the brunt of adjustment. The results show that these fears were misplaced. The total increase in employment in the economy was 3 million in 1991-92. It doubled to an average of 6 million in the next two years and exceeded 7 million in 1994-95. Employment growth is likely to be even higher this year. This compares with an average increase of less than 5 million per year in the 80s. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.